What is my nickname that y'all call me in the office? Baby Mike. No, no that's, not <laughs> that's not it. Is that just me? <laughs> Hi, everybody. It's that time again. Welcome to The Human Element, Kara's new podcast about injecting humanity into modern marketing. Last time, we talked a little bit about the intersection of mission and politics for brands in our Same Planet, Different Worlds pod. This time, we're going to take a swing at talking about how insights and technology integrate to create more human and impactful experiences. And I'm thrilled to have two gentlemen here to uh, help me discuss that. I'm going to have them introduce themselves James, you want to go first? Yeah, uh, I'm James Allen. I'm a strategy director over here at Kara. I'm Michael Liu. I'm a director on strategy and innovation and mobile here at Kara. Uh, and Chelsea has highly begrudgingly decided to join me in this effort. Hey, everyone. Fantastic. Let's jump into it. Talk to me a little bit about the work you're doing right now and how you're using real customer insights. So things we actually believe to be true or know for certain about customers to create more human-like or humanity-infused interactions with customers? We're working on some things at the moment where we're helping our clients figure out based on how people are actually buying products within the categories, how they should be talking to them. And where's the, where's the dividing line there between humanity or empathy or understanding and creepiness? Hmm. You're really good on that creepiness stuff, so you can go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me just talk about the creepiness for a second. <laughs> I think it's about showing up around the right moments and not showing up at the exact moment that something's happening, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so there's a time component. I know about you, but I don't know too much about you. Time delay helps as well. Like There's there's a certain timeliness that you need to be within a certain time frame for it to be relevant. But if it's too quick, it's like, are you watching? It's exactly the discussions we have on Instagram and Facebook. There's a lot of articles that are talking about how Instagrammers, the microphone's on all the time and it's kind of listening to you. So... It is a creepy factor because it does make people want to turn that off. Yeah, it's also incredibly effective. Yeah. Right? So my son is a senior in high school in Port Chelsea, even after this short amount of time, is like, I can't hear about this college search anymore. But (laughs) as a result of all the searching that occurs on our devices, I am inundated by stuff in social around every conceivable college in the history of mankind. And some of that has been helpful. Others of it is like, ugh, enough already. Yeah, I mean, just from my perspective on the innovation and mobile front, I've been dealing with data and specifically towards understanding people's behavior for mm-hmm. the past like three to four years, um, namely, which is location location data. So we use that as a proxy to understand more about what people are doing and match it up with some of our insights that we have here with CCS or M1 or anything like that. I do think it does give us a more relevant approach to understanding somebody's I guess, journey in life or purchase journey or anything like that. And there is that super fine line between creepy and non-creepy. You heard what, what happened with, um, I think it was the Titan out of home boards. Mm. So I forget which mayor it was, but he was trying to change all the old payphones, remove them and put beacons in every place to understand where people were going. And once people found out about that, they did this petition and he had to cancel it spun in a different way, and now that's Link NYC. Because all the Link NYCs have right. screens, beacons, but they did replace all the payphones to do that. But I think he waited for the heat to drop off because everybody was just so freaked out of, oh my God, you're tracking everywhere I'm going. I've got my son with me and my babies and mm-hmm. everything like that. But if you think about it, 
technology being invisible is a blessing for marketers and it's a blessing for the consumers where they can be ignorant to it. And the technology in our perspective, it's, if it's invisible, it's done its job because it should be just the end result of everything that we're doing versus the means of how we got there. So the technology should just be like magic. What makes you proudest about the work you're doing right now? Mike can say this one. What's pr- what makes me proud about this work right now? I can't. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, yeah. I, I just... <laughs> don't worry. I'm going to let Mike answer it, and then was, I'm, I'm thinking, taking it back. He was thinking, and while he was thinking, I came up with something. All right, go first, then. No, no, you, no, no, go. you go first. Should we both go? At yeah, the same at time. the same time, yeah. Please. Please. <laughs> yeah, just go. Um, I think the thing that I'm proud of is that we now are developing a mindset in the agency around actually delivering value to people. So when we talk about reaching people and understanding them, that that really provides something to them as well as to the brand's business that we're working with. It should be mutually beneficial and we should feel great about it. All right, fair enough. So, but talk to me a little bit about what the so what of it. Because the technology is one piece, right? And the whole principle of this pod is about, okay, great, we have infinite possibility technology-wise. What do we do to actually connect? Yeah, so... A lot of what we do is we do utilize technology to aggregate the data to understand about people. But the second half of that process when developing a product for a bespoke challenge for a client, a lot of that focus is on understanding the creative piece of it, is understanding the UI, UX piece of it. Because you could have all the targeting and accurate data that you would like, but if a consumer can't interact with it or it feels like it's relevant to them in a certain way or feel something from it, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a loss. So right. there is a big focus on trying to make sure that even the creative, whether it's a video or if it's an um, interactive unit, that that does act on the data that we had. Yeah. What examples in the market, or some of your own, do you think exemplify this idea the best? Can I give bad examples instead? Yeah, because, absolutely. So, Give me bad examples. I was thinking as Mike was rambling on about... Um, <laughs> you should be <laughs> feelings all day today. <laughs> no, I was thinking as Mike was talking about... So you originally set it up as saying, when does it go from being creepy to non-creepy? Which yeah. is, yes, that's one way of thinking about it. And there's a lot of creepy stuff that goes on. But then the other side of it is, is it useful or not useful? And there's two key examples. When I was shopping for the engagement ring for the lady that is now my wife, I got retargeted all the time with engagement ring ads. And as an engagement ring brand or website or company, they should have known that I don't want continual engagement rings coming up on my screen just in case my girlfriend looks over my screen and goes like, huh, interesting. So to me, that was a bad use of data because yes, they know that I want the engagement ring, but I don't want to be shown it all the time because then I need to hide my computer all the time. It was a real pain in the ass. So I think that's a, a good example of a bad way to use data to understand people. Another one is the way that Amazon always retargets you with like dish soap when you've just bought dish soap. And it's like, how about this one? It's like, no, I didn't buy the dish soap because I like dish soap. I bought the dish soap <laughs> so I need to clean my dishes. And now I'm fulfilling that task. So retarget me later. Right. So that's like, that comes back to the whole timeliness thing. Yeah, I, th- those are both really good examples. The Amazon thing, I think, is uh, because it is so persistent and because it's so rooted in some of the preconceived notions, I guess some of the limitations of what we're still doing, which is I'm going to continue to show you stuff that I've already shown you because I'm assuming what you've purchased is the only thing you're going to purchase. Where do you see clients making mistakes and what are those mistakes? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Oh, somebody's thinking, wow, we have somebody looking for a ring, let's just keep bombarding them. But if they actually had some human insight to it, they'd be like, well, we're kind of in stealth mode right now. 
they're most likely sharing a browser or a computer. Or even if they don't, there's there's an overlap chance that that person will be looking at it. So maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we should capture their email and send it to them directly with daily updates or something like that, or get their phone number and text them SMS. So there's other methods of retargeting them without having to be so overt about it. Yep. I think over the last few years, the data that we've had has become more and more... What's the word that I want to use? Creepy? Good? Ro- suspect? Robust? robust. Oh, I would say robust. I was trying to think of an intelligent word, and then you gave me robust. So I, I'll take is it. Is robust really that bad a word? <laughs> I think it's still in the SATs. So yeah, I, yeah. Okay. But it is. It's more robust, and we can do more with it, and we can understand, as we just talked about, the way people are behaving, when we should advertise to them. And therefore, brands have become more and more focused on being able to acquire people into the business. Like it's become very performance driven. All the KPIs in the briefs are getting more and more towards what's the efficiency, what's the conversion rate. And we're leaving behind the true element of brands, which is you need to appeal to something within people that's an emotional response. It's not an in the moment response, although that's good as well. We need to balance both. And I think that more and more we're moving away from that brand building emotional response and focusing so much on the efficiencies that it's becoming dangerous. And I think that a lot of brands have looked at the direct-to-consumer startups that have come up over the last few years and thought they are growing exponentially on only performance media. But the reason that's happening is because they have such small share of market. They don't need yes. to establish the brand so much right now. And usually these direct-to-consumer businesses have a really good brand proposition to begin with. They come into market and they want to fight something very, very specific, and that is the brand. Mike, you had an idea a couple seconds ago, or at least I'm putting you on the spot hoping that you have an idea from yeah, a couple seconds ago. It was just basically just drafting off of what James was saying. Was we were talking about, he was talking about brand versus product, and I think that's a wormhole in its own. Yeah, I know there's like some healthy debates around which one's more important. The answer probably would be just both at certain Yeah, certain the answer times. is yes. Yeah brand marketing versus product marketing. And I think that's something that we've discussed at length for multiple times. So I didn't know if that was something that we were going to go into or not, but we could save that for another time. Well, no, no, no. Let's go down it just for a second. So yes, it's a false choice, right? It, It presupposes that one or the other is not important or is of lesser importance. And the reality is that they're both important. If you don't have some kind of differentiated associated value with your brand, then you're nowhere. And if you aren't driving growth, then it's virtually impossible to have some kind of differentiated value associated with your brand. Well, I think also that comes up even more so nowadays because when we think about the next five to 10 years with automated buying and and robots and voice and Amazon just re-upping your subscription, saying I need diapers for my baby, could pick any diaper, right? But it's most likely going to pick Amazon Basics unless you have you set your preference. Yeah. And so in this next five to 10 years, what's going to happen to brand advertising when our robots are making our decisions? And really, brands will have to make a decision. If you want to be the manufacturer of the most efficient, cost-wise diaper in the world and have Amazon put their brand on it when people automatically order them, then that's probably a business model and it's a, a low-margin, high-volume business model and have at it. But you know what that isn't? It's not Pampers. It's not Huggies. It's not a brand. The other choice is, no, I I really have a brand. And that brand comes with an associated set of experiences and expectations and and innovation and interest and mission that, that propel me forward. So I think there is a fork in the road. What happens when product becomes a parody with 
the major brands. So Amazon Basics mm-hmm. batteries. I think mm-hmm. Amazon batteries are the most popular batteries sold on yep. Amazon, of course. Right? Yeah. They, they tweak their algorithm to do so as well. But they're also cost efficient. And for some necessity items like that, when it's not like a brand that you want to express yourself, like a t-shirt yeah. or something like that, where does that go? This is the whole chore and cherish argument, right? Like brands that you have to interact with because you have a necessity that you need to fill. And there's brands that you want to interact with because you want to express yourself to the world and you want to say something about yourself and and they might just have something cool to say. And the fork in the road that you were talking about, that's Amazon. Amazon is the fork in the road where ultimately they're going to create a whole line of those chore products that you need to interact with and make them as efficient as possible. Anybody else that's outside of that is going to need to have a brand that really differentiates them because they're going to be in the cherish portion. If you can't represent something that people can actually cherish about your brand, then what are you left with? So are you saying that chore brands stay in chore or could they also be cherished? Is it usage that defines them or is it a um, resonance they have with the consumer that defines them? It's both. So the if you took a room of people, probably half of them would consider toothpaste a chore. All toothpaste are the same. They believe that it's roughly the same ingredients and it's all going to clean my teeth the same way and we end up with a lovely smile. The other half of the people will emotionally invest in their toothpaste choices because they really care about how their smile looks. And they'll say, I want the best toothpaste because I want the whitest teeth, the healthiest gums, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you've got somebody that was in the original chore-based group and now suddenly they're going to get married, second time we talked about marriage on this podcast, by the way, I've talked about it. If somebody is in that chore-based group and suddenly they're getting married, they might reinvest in those choices and think much more about it because they're like, oh, I want to have a lovely smile on my wedding day. And suddenly that product is a cherish-based product. And now they're doing a lot more research and they're thinking about the brands. So you can flip-flop between the two. And it's important for brands to understand all the way down to an individual consumer level which one they are to people. So you're saying basically that the algorithm approach is sort of null then, if it's both? Say, I really care about my electronics and batteries. So I want to only pick Energizer or Duracell. Does Amazon batteries still have that same effect? Or is it sort of like that evens out the playing field because they can swap between chore and cherish? Or is there a distinct line between chore and cherish? I think there is a gray area between the two where some brands move in and out. I don't think it's a hard line. So the way I would explain it is on a spectrum. And on one end, you've got distinctly chore brands on the other end you've got distinctly cherished brands and somewhere in the middle you've got this overlap and there are some products and brands that are just distinctly chore like that's what they're designed to be in the world and they're never going to make their way up to cherish there may be no point in them getting there and i'm happy to be challenged on that thought i think that makes sense to me at the risk of introducing a second dimension i think there are chore and cherish brands and i think there are chore and cherish customers i think there are those people for whom Brands as a whole, regardless of category, are cherished. And there are those brands as a whole, regardless of category, are chores. Yeah, no, I would agree. All right, so what kind of consumers are you guys? I would say I'm 80% cherished, 20% chore consumer. Go on. So I I am very um, deliberate in my purchases. The 20% is for the things that I'm okay. Like if it is a toothpaste, I'll go two tubes and then I'm like, ah, let me try another, let me try enough ones to see if they're, I'm missing anything, right? Um, and then I'll just go back if I don't like it. So I'm, I'm very open to that, but I would say the majority of the time I'm a cherished brand consumer. Wow. I've never been asked this before. 
I think I'm going to go the other way. I think I'm 20% cherish and 80% sure. I think I would like to think that I'm 80% cherish. When I think of all the volume of like nonsense that I buy, I think most of it is just chore. I buy it mindlessly. I just bought like stuff to go on top of my oatmeal in the mornings. And I literally just typed it into Amazon, clicked on the first thing and pressed order and it will be here tomorrow. It's going to be great. What kind of stuff? Yeah, what do you search for? (laughs) I I searched oatmeal stuff. And That's it. You literally (laughs) typed in oatmeal stuff. Oatmeal sprinkle. God, it's getting quite personal now, isn't it? Um, It was was ground... Oh, what is it? <laughs> Rhinoceros <laughs> horn? Yeah. Like, See, what? Is, I don't know what this is. This is what is. I mean. It was such a troll. I can't even remember what it's called. It's it's purple. Oh, acai. It's ground acai. And it goes huh. on top of my oatmeal. My argument would be that's your first time doing it, though. No, no. Oh, you've done ground acai on top of your oatmeal before? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same brand? Um, I can't remember. Hence, chore. This is probably one of the more relatable conversations we've had on this pod. <laughs> Chelsea, lay some wisdom on us. Chore or cherish? I'm always a cherish. Always. Always. You, you cherish am, every I'm, buy. Yeah, because I, I don't go on Amazon either. So everything I purchase is Whoa. usually in person, to be honest with you. So I like to look at all the products that I'm purchasing. You're the first person I've ever met that does not shop on Amazon. No, Whoa. I don't like Amazon. And representing Sorry, 1957 like, will be Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, what, what type of batteries do you buy? Uh, Duracell. Why Duracell and Law Energizer? You know what? I'm kind of like an emotional purchaser. So my parents have used it. And since they have their whole entire lives, so have I. Which one's the one with the bunny? That's Energizer. Yeah. Yeah. Not the Duracell bunny. No. 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 It's definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's let's jump along. Uh, Chelsea, you had another question you wanted to ask? So Apple included a screen time analysis feature in the latest release. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for that, James. What does that mean? What is it that, that what is that grown? I, I turned mine on and was very disappointed at myself in the amount of time I spend looking at my phone screen. Hold that hold that thought. She, she's getting to that, I think. <laughs> at what point is mobility a burden to users? If we're talking outside of advertising, I think that it's just a burden to presence, like mental availability is taken up by a huge amount of time spent on mobile. It's not available to brands. It's just time where you're just consumed by this little screen in front of you. To James's point about when it becomes a burden to somebody, it's when they get lost in the algorithm. And I think that's what these technology companies are designing it for. I would just say mobility and social media at the same time are, are very much related. And I think social media is deteriorating our society as we know it today putting our priorities and values in different places. And I think mobility is not a burden in terms of access because it it does provide so much for us and for us to accomplish so many different things. The burden is when you get sucked into the device itself and social media. Is it making relationships more transactional? Yeah. Whether or not we order them through our apps or we want very punchy answers back when we text. Like you'll be in a room with somebody and you just get a text from them from across the room asking for you to pass something. I think the whole point of mobile is access and people are happy with that. And so that does give them a sense of, I can turn you off or turn you down. Which is non-relational in context, right? I mean, by definition. Correct, yeah. Um, So we're getting on toward the end. I've just got something I want to throw out. It's different than what we've talked about throughout the, the balance of the podcast. And yet, I think it's really related. A Washington Post journalist was allegedly recently effectively assassinated by the Saudi state 
And that's created a real crisis internationally, both for nations and for corporations. If you were providing advice to brands and corporations on how they should frame their interactions with sovereign states, not just specifically the Saudi government, what would you tell them? Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> just, <laughs> just jump on that one. It should be an easy one to answer. <laughs> I pleaded Chelsea on this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Chelsea did say she has some thoughts on this. Yeah. <laughs> nope. This is all you guys. Fundamentally, here's the question. the question, right? So we were just talking about relationships becoming more transactional. We were talking about that being accelerated by elements of mobility, elements of social media. You know, we can talk ad infinitum about institutional issues governmentally around the world. But but the question on the table is, you know, you're providing strategic advisory advice to a brand about should they attend this conference? Should they advertise at that conference? It's sponsored by pick your favorite, you know, moderately authoritarian government. What are you telling them? This is genuinely a question that I've never considered in my life. I think that the easiest way to think about it in my initial reaction is does it uphold the standards of the brand? I would equate that to to the programming that we're advertising on as well. I mean, we saw what happened to Roseanne, and I, I would advise it the same way if it was something to do with the government as well. It's just, I have a feeling that this is like a deeper question that you're asking. Though. No, this part is sort of on its face, but I am leading the witness, right? Because the next, the next thing this brings to fore for me is there's a public trust associated with major brands. My hypothesis is that more of what we do in our jobs moving forward is going to be associated with that idea. Here's, here's a sideways question. Do you think the majority of consumers care about that? Or do you think that's just a growing care that's, that's moving into that? For example, if, if a brand did do something bad, but it was their main cherished brand, do you think that they move away from, from that brand or they're like, they'll ignore it? I'm looking at Chelsea. Because I'm a cherished buyer. I am as well. Like my mom heard something politically and she does not shop at this particular retailer anymore because of that. Mm. But I'm like, God, mom, like, where are you going to go? <laughs> she doesn't these Amazons or like Chelsea. But, you know, but some people are very convicted like that. But I would say a majority of people are not as convicted as that. Not yet. So I think like on that lines, if a brand is aligned to those values and they're making that move, I can't hate them for being aligned to their values. So if I decide to not purchase from them again, it's not because I hate that brand anymore. It's just because I'm not aligned to those values. I guess it would be case by case for me, but either way, it wouldn't be based off of like a hateful emotion for me as a consumer. It'd be I respect them, but I'm not aligned and I might move on. Or I respect them so much for making that move, then I'm going to stay with them. So I think if you're really core to that true brand purpose and value, it makes sense. You don't cut people from your life when they make a mistake especially the ones you love and that you have the most trust for. When they make a mistake, it may upset you, but you don't walk away from them. I think the same thing is true of brands. So Alex, who you would have heard talking on last week's podcast, if you haven't listened, go back and listen now. <laughs> Thanks for that shameless plug. <laughs> um, we were talking about the idea of brand elasticity, right? And that brands don't win or lose consumers necessarily on its own because ultimately people will do what's right for them and a lot of the time what's right for them is the price. If the price point is right, I'm going to buy that brand. But what brands do is they create this sense of um, tolerance and elasticity and attachment to the brand, right? So if a brand messes up that you like a lot that have done a really good job of establishing that emotional connection, you're going to be more tolerant of them than a brand that's established no emotional connection with you. 
So, but going upon the the thought of also economized relationships and transactional relationships, will we be moving to a point where we will be so used to cutting people out when we need to? Because I think we're used to it with everything else in our lives now. Would that not be the same? I think people are more and more ready to cut brands out of their life when they really misbehave. But I think they would still have to really reinvest in the decision if it was a brand that they deeply loved. Yeah. And then I think also from last week's podcast, y'all talked about brands having positions in the, in the political climate and mm-hmm. just things that they stand for. Do y'all believe that all brands should, or is it just some brands? I like how Mike's just turned this into his own interview. Now he he's has, asking the questions. Um, I have some good questions. So <laughs> he does. We'll be the judge of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is every brand's got to have a set of core values. The question is, how far do those core values take you into mission or political areas? And I think that there's a wide there's a wide variety of that, right? So if I'm a you know aluminum siding manufacturer, I, you know the degree to which I can really Take a stand on, you know, this is deliberately ridiculous. Global hunger is probably limited. But by the same token, if I want to take a position around immigration or migrant labor, that might be something, you know. So I I think it's a a, a pretty wide scale. But I do think every single brand is going to be continually and more frequently confronted by the question of what are your core values and how do they guide you to make decisions. And I think that's different. I think for a long time in business, we've done things like, all right, well, we, we believe brands have value. And then we try to put quantitative measures around what that value is. And we even tried to associate it with what the stock price is, right? So we have things like the brand asset valuator and other methodologies, you know, brand Z to say, oh, this is what the distinct value of these brands are. But what we haven't done is sort of say, this is a, a, a driving decision frame for the entire business. Where should you be? What shouldn't you be? Who should you be? You know, I think that's different. Brand as as real business guide, I think, is an interesting is an interesting area. And my new company will handle that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good answer. I, I like the way that you put it because there are certain degrees, right? You could be altruistic to having very strong political mm-hmm. messaging, such a la Nike, right? If we do go down the path of all brands having something to say, especially having causes that they support, will we get to a point where it divides us even more as a country? Or we'll get to a point where supporting the brands that stand for something says more about you like they did in the past. Here now, it's, it's kind of like a wash. But back then, when you wore a brand, it, it said something about status and class and what you, what you were doing as well. And that kind of denoted some, sure. some other things too. But. American brands in particular walk to the table with a set of attributes in the past that they didn't necessarily have to express. Now, some chose to wrap themselves in the flag, and some chose to, you know, stirring music in pickup trucks and buffalo, but they all walked to the table as American-oriented brands. And that came with sort of the embedded fabric of a belief system. There is a void now. I think we find ourselves in a, in a void the past couple of years, and that's why individual brand moves here by American brands, I think, are significant because they don't necessarily have this sort of coded framework that comes with them, this a priori brand structure. Oh, I'm an American brand. That brings with it assumptions around opportunity and freedom and whatnot. To some extent, they're reinforcing some of those things that have come along with being an American brand. That's, that's a really interesting space, I think, to look at. Well, it's, well it's- I was going to actually say it's more about emotions and it's storytelling. So Nike, this is a longer story. This is a long game for them. 
they're telling an emotional story for their consumers, which is now a different thing than political. It's going beyond politics now. So I think there is an interesting aspect with like winning with consumers now isn't about just even nation state. It's about driving emotion and figuring out what that emotion is with their consumers. I agree. I don't, I don't like the term political when it's used with brands because just having a point of view doesn't mean you have to be political. It means you're taking a point of view on what's going on in the world around you. And I think the brands should feel like they have license to do that. As long as it's based on the values that they're built on, then why not? People have points of view that don't have to be political. I agree with that. But by its very nature in today's world, that has political context. <laughs> it just does. That's true, yeah. So, and I don't, and I don't mean that. That's why I don't really sort of walk away from the political context. If you're providing valid advice to brands and their leadership, I think you've got to make sure that you're putting a, a, a political understanding, a political context around those recommendations. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It's not a bad word. It's just a reality. Um, Listen, I cannot thank you guys enough. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Thank you very much. I know this is your favorite thing to do. James, Mike, thank you. Thank you you so much for listening, everybody. We will be back out to you very shortly with something new and interesting, but we certainly hope that you enjoy this. You can find us anywhere you can find audio. I promise you, we are there. So every Friday, I'm being told to say... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> They're literally cue cards here. It's like SNL. It's just um, so please tune in every single Friday. We drop a new one and we'll be back out to you real soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.